0: And please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 19 once again. We already went through Genesis 19 once with the big picture in view. The main message was the righteous judgment of God and Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a, given as a prototype of final judgment as well. We know this because our Lord says so in the Gospels. Uh, this picture of swift destruction that um, is very careful by the hand of God to execute his righteousness is a picture of the final judgment that awaits. It's a warning to us to be sure we're in Christ, that we are um, resting in Christ and his righteousness. But there's also an underlying story in the book of Genesis that culminates in this 19th chapter, and that's the story of Lot. Lot, this nephew of Abraham who we have met throughout Abraham's life in different times, but then appears as one who is characterized in the New Testament as a believer. Yet, we see nothing of his behavior in chapter 19 that would give us such confidence. Um, What is it about this man who is called righteous? And of course, we know that righteousness comes by faith in the God of Abraham. Um, What happens in this man's life that brings him from this place of grace alongside of Abraham, witnessing all these amazing actions of God towards Abraham and his family. What brings them from that to this place? Really, you can't get much lower than this passage describes. Uh, This passage, uh, this chapter helps us, gives us a warning of sorts that it is possible for someone in this position to be so friends with the world that they compromise all the way down to the lowest possible point. And we'll see this as a warning to us. It's a bit of a a cautionary tale, you might say, the person of Lot and his legacy. Here now as I read God's holy word, I'll read just a portion of what we already covered, uh, chapter 19, 15 to verse 22. Then I'll go to verse 30 to 38, which is that uh, summary conclusion of Lot's life. Here as I read. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! And Lot said to them, "'O no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved.' He said to him, "'Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken.' escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. In the interlude between this passage and verse 30, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah unfolds, and Lot's wife dies. And so now, at the end, they find themselves in Zoar, the city he asked for permission to go to, and we pick up in verse 30 of chapter 19. Now Lot went up Out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and laid with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she ro- arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father, lest let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that he, we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, once again we come to this unsettling passage in Scripture. Even living today in a world with very little shame about anything, we find ourselves recoiling a bit when we read of Lot and his daughters. But Lord, we know the story of Lot is in Scripture for a reason. Please help us to learn from what is here recorded, that we might avoid so falling in love with the world that we no longer function as the salt and the light that you intend your people to be for Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned to you, the episode with Sodom, on the whole, is a prototype for the righteous judgment of God. Laden into this story is the tragedy of Lot, this person who was shown so much grace and favor by God. Even said to be righteous in 2 Peter, he falls so far because of his love of the world. and hurts other people as a result. If it weren't for what Peter says, we would never imagine Lot to be a genuine believer. In 2 Peter 2, we read, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked for as that righteous man lived among them day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds and he saw and that he saw and heard then the lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials talking about the extreme conditions that lot found himself in and how he was tormented but yet we know as we look at the whole of it he never had any outflow of that faith that he was given by god to show itself In his life after he left Abraham. Who was Lot and what is his story? Let's consider a brief survey that puts it together with what we have read in chapter 19, brings us up to speed so we can fully appreciate what happened in his life, what declines occurred, so that we might gather some warnings for ourselves. Now, as a preface, it's not to say that we find ourselves living in a place just like Sodom was. Sodom is almost unprecedented and there were no righteous people there. There was no existence of God's people. We live in a time where the church over years, by God's grace, despite persecution and opposition and, count, and the culture opposing us, there's still many. We're gathered here worshiping. Others are gathered worshiping. We have accountability with each other, support with one another. It's not to say that we have a one-for-one situation. But Lot is someone Scripture describes as a believer and we see a terrible decline we see a decline and a loss in many features of who he should have been. That does serve as a warning to us to consider how friendly with the world are we. Are we in love with the world more, more than we are in love with God's kingdom? Good questions that should be asked. And Lot is such a figure as deserves some time to consider. You remember Lot was Abraham's nephew. Abraham's brother died relatively early, and so it seems that Lot took up with his uncle Abraham very early. Abraham was a keen businessman. He accumulated many material possessions and eventually had an operation or a clan of hundreds of people under his care and responsibility. Lot seems to have modeled himself after Abraham, and he too had many possessions and people in his care. He attached himself to Abraham when Abraham received the call from God to leave the Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the promised land called Canaan at the time, later to be Israel. Lot followed Abraham all the way from the Ur of the Chaldees to Israel. Then when the famine came and Abraham made the choice to go to Egypt to find food, that whole episode that almost cost him everything, Lot followed Abraham and went and saw that all unfold. Lot watched God miraculously deliver Abraham and Sarai out of Egypt and back to the promised land. Lot follows Abraham back to the promised land. And they had even more stuff when they got back to the promised land. This is God's gracious provision for them. Abraham was a new man when he came back, and he now thought differently about the promises of God. He saw things eternally. And he said to his nephew Lot, We have too big a crowd, too big of herds now, and they're starting to get on each other's nerves. Let's split up now. You take any part of the land you want to take. I will take the left if you take the right. If you decide to take the right, I'll take the left. Whatever it is that you want, you take it. And this is an interesting moment because it says in Genesis 13, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This is where the cities of the plain were, where Sodom and Gomorrah and other cities were located, right where the Jordan River goes into the Dead Sea. And this was, of course, before the time that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, as Moses notes back in Genesis 13. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. Now it's a place that was established. And Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. It says in the older versions, pitched his tent toward Sodom. So he was choosing to go to a settled city, they already had people there. Abram was going somewhere to settle. It says in verse 13, back in Genesis 13, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. That's a point to note that Lot chose there to settle. That's where he would live. And this began his extended difficulties. Some years later, Abraham hears that these pirate kings of the north were sweeping around the Dead Sea and pillaging and robbing various city-states. One was Sodom and some of the cities around. And those kings kidnapped his nephew, Lot, and took them up further north. Abraham gathers a small militia, 300-some people. They go up and they capture back Lot and free Lot and get his stuff back, and others as well are liberated because of the risk that Abraham takes Because of his nephew Lot. Now when this happens, Lot is brought back by his uncle. And as he comes back, Lot got to witness Melchizedek, that Christ figure, that priest of the Most High God, come out and congratulate Abraham, give him tribute for who he was and what he was doing, to renew covenant with him, that he is the chosen one of God. Lot got to watch this about his uncle. Lot would have an opportunity here to change his course, seeing what he was seeing. Not only that, maybe even more powerful than that. You remember that the king of Sodom went up to Abraham after he had liberated all the people, not just Lot, but other people and stuff from Sodom. And the king wanted to give Abraham something to say thank you. And Abraham said, no, no, don't give me, I don't want anything from you. I don't want any possible way that I could be beholden to you. I am beholden only to my God. Lot got to see all this. He knows what Abraham thought of Sodom and thought of the king there. Yet, Lot decides that he's going to go back and establish himself even more. His love of the world had grown to such an extent at this point that he was willing to even go, after he seen all that, back to Sodom. Kent Hughes says, in observation of where Lot's heart is at this point, with the passing of time, Lot perceptibly loosed himself from God's grasp allowing the fingers of Sodom to close ever tighter around his convulsing soul. He settles there, it seems like, for good. When we entered the first verses of chapter 19, we discover that he is now sitting in the gate. This means he was a town official of some sort. He was a man of some repute and probably influence. It says in Genesis 19:1, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. This would have been like a complex, a welcoming complex where everybody was seen as they came and went. He would be sitting like in the office there with a window being able to see who came and went because he was a person of some kind of repute. Now we learn of the wickedness, the extreme wickedness of Sodom in our study of chapter 19. Lot and his family were thoroughly assimilated into that city. His daughters had been engaged now, they were engaged to two men from Sodom. Yet despite living there, we know from what Peter says, and we sense a bit of it when he's trying to hide what the reality was uh, to the, from the angels, there's a discomfort in Lot when he sees the angels come. He's living there willingly, his family has their roots there, they're participating in the life there, yet he's embarrassed by the place. You get a sense of that torment. But despite a show of conscience when he tries to protect the angels from the men of Sodom, Lot does the most disgusting and reprehensible thing as you see it unfold. In verses 4 through 8, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, "'Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them.' Lot went out to them. He said, "'I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please.'" only do nothing to these men. If Lot was genuinely a believer, how could he have become so sick, twisted, and warped? It didn't happen overnight, and that's the point of the story of Lot. Friendship with the world brings compromise. Compromise has a great, great cost over the course of time. You know, the last picture we have of Lot is him living in a cave with his daughters, the account I just read and won't repeat. That's how, low things t- that's how low love of the world took Lot. Again, I mentioned Ken Hughes earlier, and I quote him again because he does such a great job capturing the gist of this last scene in Lot's life. Consumed by fears, he fled with his two daughters to the mountains of the Dead Sea and became a cave dweller. Perhaps Lot feared reprisals from his new neighbors, who trembled at the thought of another judgment from God on their city now because Lot was there. It's intriguing that Lot did not return to the tents of Abraham, where surely he would have been welcome. Perhaps this was due to shame. Fear and depression can cloud judgment. The cave was more than metaphorical of his descent. Lot and his daughters lived in a dark isolation in the must-dank chambers of the cave. Caves were often tombs. Spiritually entombed, Lot lived a degenerated, death-like existence, sinking into ever deeper depression and corruption. It turns out that the offspring of Lot's union with his daughters would become the Moabites and the Ammonites. If you're familiar with how things unfold for Israel, these two become thorns in the side of the children of Abraham, his beloved uncle, in the years that come. In essence, Lot fell in love with the world at some point. And that love consistently led him to compromise. Later, the Apostle John warns Christians with these words, "'Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever.'" I want to, in our time together, consider what the cost of compromise was for Lot and then draw some connections that we might learn from. You'll see on your handout, I have four specific costs for compromise. And the first one is Lot's loss of sight concerning the eternal. He no longer has an eternal perspective. When you become friends with the world, which is fading, You start to see like the world sees, which is extremely and dangerously nearsighted. Does not look to the future promises of God, the future realities of God? Looks only at the here and the now, and it's based on the sensual, what we taste, touch, and feel, and that it'll go away, and we want to grasp at it because it might be gone tomorrow, and that becomes our perspective. This is what definitely started to overtake Lot's thinking and decision-making. Unlike Abraham, who had learned with all his foibles, for sure, had learned that Canaan, the land he would occupy, wasn't the actual ultimate Canaan he was looking for. He learned to look for a city whose founder was God. Lot did not learn this and was looking for a city that could meet his needs in the here and the now big difference in their perspectives but when you start to compromise with the world and the world's view you start to think like the world and you make your decisions on tomorrow today maybe but certainly not that far in the future eternity that was not in Lot's mind as he was allured by the temporal beauty and the immediate opportunities that Sodom and the surrounding city seemed to offer he wasn't interested in starting a new civilization in the name of God He wanted to join one that was already, uh, one that already had it all going on. He wasn't interested in molding the place that he was going to, but rather he was going to fit a place that already had its way of doing things. You know, most of our short-sighted decisions come from a temporal perspective where we think like the world thinks, when they think all there is is today. Eat, drink today for tomorrow we die mindset. And believers shouldn't have that. view. We have the eternal city to look forward to. And that changes how we make our immediate decisions. But Lot evidences what happens when we compromise with the world. His values were focused on the here and on the now. And that clouded his, the rest of his choices that unfold from this point. He became invested in Sodom despite the growing decadence. He joined Sodom's value system rather than establishing or impressing upon Sodom his own. While it's true that Lot might have personally avoided the full depth of sin that existed in Sodom, he did nothing, apparently, to change it. He loved the comfort there. His family loved the comfort there. They loved the trappings of Sodom. Lot's hope was in a city that had human foundations, not an eternal city. You know, most tragically, this evidences itself in the life of his wife. You remember in the episode, verse 24 of chapter 19, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. Total destruction was happening. But Lot's wife, it says, behind him looked back she became a pillar of salt. She went against the command of the angels, don't look back, go forward. Looking back was evidence that her heart loved what was in Sodom. She hurt for it being gone. She missed it. She wanted it back. She was being rescued to a much better future, but she was so in love with the now that she had no view of the eternal. It's a picture of the mindset that had overtaken Lot's household, led by himself. Her love was for the now, And brothers and sisters, the now is dwindling fast. And with the eternal view, we recognize that and handle the now, navigate the now altogether different from what we see unfold with Lot. The longer you are friendly with the world and the thinking of the world, the more compromised your perspective about the truth of eternity it will become. In Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on the earth. He doesn't mean ignore what's happening here. But as you set your mind on God's heavenly realities that await in all that he declares, it sets your mind aright on what is below. It says further in Colossians 3, "For you have died and your life is hidden in Christ with God. When Christ who your life appears future when he appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Set your mind on eternity. That will help you live life as God calls you to live here now, and you'll be ready for when he re- returns or when you meet him. But when we have love of the world, we take our cues from the world and we lose sight of the eternal. There's something else that happens, there's something else we lose, and it flows from this first point. You will also lose sound judgment. Godly judgment will become near impossible when your focus is that of the world's focus. And we see that happen here with Lot. Friendship with the world means a skewed moral compass. Your ability to navigate what happens here and now will be according to a different set of values rather than God's perspective. Things that are wicked to God can become acceptable to us over time if we're taking our cues from the world in which we live. We'll become infected by the thinking of our surroundings. Our morals will be shaped by the morals of the culture. Lot did not see Sodom for what it was descending into. He didn't see how bad it really was. He grew more and more numb while he was there. There would be moments where he'd perk up and re- recognize what it is. Like when the angel showed up and he saw of oh, an outside eye, see this. And he had that sensitivity. But for the most part, he, w- he was comfortable living in it. He had lost the edge of holiness that God would give him. Genesis 13, he started by pitching his tent towards Sodom. Genesis 14, he's living there and chooses to go back there. Genesis 19, he's an official in the city by this point. And he's lost his ability to make judgments about what he's seeing around him. The Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians, a church that has a lot of the same cultural trappings as America has, with all the things that we have that can distract us and dissuade us and pull us away to worship. So Paul writes to these believers and says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. His judgment was severely compromised because of the company he had taken up with. In the Corinthian letter, Paul says, wake up from your drunken stupor. Shake up out of this. You're, listening to the, you're following the wrong people. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. You're looking just like the people don't know God, Lot. And that's what was happening. His judgment was being severely impaired. We see the effects. When he actually offers his daughters to the crazed mob, how far does one have to go in their slipping judgment to make this kind of hideous proposal? All those years in Sodom warped his values and his judgment Radically. Then you look at the closing verses. Yes, his daughters had a nefarious scheme for sure. It's wicked. It's sinful. But as the father here, he doesn't have to be compelled into drunkenness. His judgment is so slipped that he allowed for this scheme to work. That's how dull he was morally at this point. His judgment had deteriorated to a point as low as we can imagine it going. Solomon writes in the Proverbs, Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil avoid it do not go on it on in it turn away and pass from it as we dwell in it our judgment skews we lose sight of the eternal we lose sound lose sound godly judgment and there's something else we lose we lose a sensitivity to god speaking we lose a sensitivity to the word of God the more we become friends with the world. The more we listen to the world's message, the less we're affected by what God says. Even though God speaks from another world to us the message we need, we're less impressed by it as we become more pressed with the world around us. We will lose sensitivity to God's world, to God's word as we a lie with the world. Lot had forgotten what he had witnessed and learned through Abraham's life and experience. He saw some amazing miracles along Abraham's side. He saw the angels clearly sent by God in his own life with supernatural power, miraculously put off the crowd that was trying to assault him and his family and the guests. He saw those angels rescue. So he knows he's talking to God's messengers. So through those angels, God's will is being spoken to him. So he's hearing the word of God that God is going to send a judgment to come. Clearly, the word of God comes to him. But he's so compromised at this point, even when angels come to tell him you got to get out, look what he responds like in verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. What a gracious word of God to deliver his family, to give him this opportunity to speak to him. But he's so desensitized to the word of God that he, he, it says next in verse 15, amazingly, but he lingered. He hesitated. He heard the word of God and he thought, uh, I don't know. Really? That's what he's saying by lingering there. For, for sure, because I really like it here. You're, I got to leave? He hears the word of God about a destruction that will come. Maybe. You see how desensitized he is to the word of God in so much love with Sodom at this point. He just did not take God's word seriously. It gets worse in verse 17. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. The angel saying, this destruction is going to be so big, you've got to go this direction. You're going to have to go into the hills, and you are got to go until you can't go anymore. This isn't like negotiable. This isn't something that uh, an idea the angel has. It's, you've got to do this to survive this. That's the word of God to him. Elat said to him, no, 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 Lord, my lords. I, I can't escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. I've I got a different way. I heard what you're saying, but let me, i got to bet. I hear the word of God, but i got an idea for you. This city over here, I can go here. It's closer. It's a small little city. A small one, right? Can I escape there and live? He goes from lingering and hesitating when he hears the word of God. Now he's haggling with God over whether his word is true. When we compromise with the world, we question God's word. I know God has his standard for marriage in the scriptures. Purity and commitment. But nowadays, you know, people are wiser now. They live together first. They have sex first. You know, I know what you say, Lord, but, you know, look what people are, come on. I know God's word says to honor his Sabbath day, keep it holy, set it apart, a day consecrated unto him and to the refreshment of our spiritual souls as readying for a new week, a great gift of God to the people. I know the word says that and identifies that for us. But, you know, God, there are other things I could do that day. You know, it's another day to do stuff for myself. Everybody seems to think that. Christians do too. Lord, I know your word says this, but can I still do this and be okay? We linger, we question, we challenge God's word when we are a friend with the world. That's what we see happening. Compromise, it leads to losing sight of the eternal, it leads to losing sound judgment, it leads to a desensitizing to the word of God, a lack of sensitivity to the word of God. And it also leads, ultimately, to a loss of credibility and influence. Jesus said of his followers, you and I, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light for all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we meet Lot in Genesis 19, despite being some kind of community leader, he had no saltiness whatsoever and was no kind of light. You might say, well, he... He called out the evil, though, when those men were trying to assault. He called out the evil when they were trying to assault. Okay, well, let's let's look at that particular story a little bit. It says in Genesis 19-7, Lot said, I beg you, my brothers. He calls the Sodomites his brothers to try to fend them off. Do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters. And then his, his explanation is, Stop this righteousness and do this unrighteousness instead. Uh, That's the kind of influence he had at this point. And it was not lost on the people. The people see this hypocrisy. Because what do they say after he offers his daughters? They say, stand back, Lot. This fellow, says to each other, this fellow came to sojourn among us and he's going to judge us. He has no grounds to judge. He has no credibility. He has no influence. There's nothing about anything you're saying, Lot, that would make or compel us to change our minds. So stand back. In fact, you're going to get it worse than they were going to get it now. That's the kind of credibility and influence Lot had garnered by this moment in his life. You know, there's a sadder part of this story about his credibility and influence, though. comes a few verses later. Listen to Genesis 19.14. He knows the destruction is going to come. The angels say, hey, get some of your family members and we'll get them out too. What a gracious offer. There's no reason for them to do this except because of Abraham's prayer connected to Lot. Now Lot has a chance to get some people saved out of there. So he goes to the two men who are engaged to his daughters. Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who are to marry his daughters. Listen closely to what he says and notice his influence. Up, up, Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. And I'll paraphrase what they said. The Lord? When have you ever said anything about the Lord, Lot? Ha! That's hilarious. And they says, but it seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. It was jesting because he never talked about the Lord to them in any serious way. That's what happens when we become friends with the world. We're so compromised that any credibility or influence we might have is lost. The word of Lot carried no weight with them. He had no impact on the culture around him. He had no impact on his sons-in-law. He had little impact on his own wife who longed for Sodom more than a rescue even. Maybe he chose to live in a cave because he knew at the end of his life that he had nothing left in the credibility tank. I want to pause for a moment and close with a few specific applications for us. The pause is this. Like I said, I don't think we are living in Sodom in America. There's lots of pockets that could be challenges. I think that many schools could be close to it. Universities could be close to it as far as the pressures they put on people to do certain things certain ways. So you ought to take real inventory about those places. Even corporations and workplaces could bend that way, but not the full weight of what we see in Sodom. But we should not underestimate how much of the world we take in. I know the amount of world I take in just on my phone. We take in a lot of the world and we could be desensitized really easily. It wouldn't be hard for us to lose sight of the eternal with all the promises of the temporal. It's not hard for us uh, to lose our judgment when we keep hearing wisdom from the world telling us how we should look at this or look at that. It's not hard to lose sensitivity to the Word of God when it doesn't seem quite right compared to what the world's saying to us. I was thinking about this a little bit. You know, why would I be nervous about preaching Genesis 19? Like, if you get nervous about the pastor saying what the Bible says about homosexuality and condemning, if that unnerves you, you've been living in Sodom a long time then maybe. Maybe we're just so sensitized to what the world says is right, even though the world's going to hell, that we cringe a bit when we read a, a something like, now we should cringe about the fact that all of us should receive judgment. That God's judgment is something that really uh, unsettles us because we know it's worthy. But if we're cringing because we're afraid to talk about it, that proves the point that we've lost sensitivity to the Word of God a bit. And finally, it's true that we lose our credibility and influence when we look so much like the world, nobody could tell the difference. And then we try to speak up on an issue, and they're like, who are you? We know what you do about this. All of it is so relevant and so faces us so clearly. A few of the applications to take away. Are our values shaped by eternity? Is our hope like Abraham in the city with foundations who are made by God, the eternal city? We also ought not to, like Lot, underestimate how bad things really are in the world in which we live or how perilous they are. Lot consistently underestimated how bad things had gotten in Sodom. He lost sensitivity to the wickedness around him. And there's much in the world that can do the same to us. It desensitizes us. Now, none of the scriptures are saying that we should withdraw from the world altogether. In fact, we are placed here to have a certain impact. But there are times where we have to be realistic about the surroundings affecting us more than we're affecting the surroundings and withdraw from certain situations that only you can figure out in your life. It might be necessary for you for a time, to make a change in where you're working or where you're spending your leisure hours or where your children are going to school or university, where you're going to school, who, who you're hanging with. Ask yourself the question, are you influencing your surroundings or are your surroundings influencing you? Act on your convictions when you know this to be true. If a situation distresses you in this way, don't stay in that environment. Would the people in your workplace, your neighborhood, your neighborhood, your sports team, your dance club, your book club, your drama club, where they know you're a follower of Christ? And where they know just by what you're saying or by the fullness of what you're doing as well? Think about this difficult one. When you instruct your children with the Word of God, do they take you seriously? Why or why not? What is our attitude to the Word of God when we hear it? are we convicted by the Word or do we try to convict the Word? Paul wrote, as I mentioned earlier, to the Corinthians a people very much like us in the culture they found themselves in. Pluralism and all sorts of opportunities for idolatry and easy to be knocked off the path, uh, spiritual path. And when we think of someone like Lot, I can't help but think perhaps Paul had him in mind when he wrote these words in 1 Corinthians. They're words of warning to us. He's talking to a church that he helped plant. It had been founded on the person of Christ. They claim they know Christ. Listen to what he says. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I lay the foundation. Someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Paul said, I brought Jesus to you, and you guys have been growing. You've been building on Christ. If you build on Christ, there's firmness. Then he uses a bit of a picture that I have to imagine he probably had lot in mind. Maybe not. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. Alexander White, in his Bible Characters book, said that if Abraham is the father of the faithful, Lot is the father of all such as are scarcely saved. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Let's pray. Father, we have undertaken an uncomfortable endeavor in studying the life of Lot. His shortcomings are on historic display and easy enough for us to see. But still, O Lord, we struggle with our friendship with the world. We are aware of the warning of James who wrote, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself or herself an enemy of God. Lord, help us to strike the right balance, a devotion to you, our Lord Jesus Christ, his call in our life our devotion to your word, and our calling to be engaged with the world so as to be salt and light for Christ. Lord, where we may be too engaged with the world and where we might be sliding into compromise, please convict us and help us to be refreshed in our devotion to you. May we ask, as Isaac Watts puts so eloquently, am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb?" And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? In Christ I pray, amen. Let's turn to 573 and sing that hymn. Jeannie will play through it once so we're familiar with the tune. Let's stand and sing the first four verses of Am I a Soldier of the Cross.